Welcome to the return of the Broadcast Journal. I'm Kofi Apia, and my guest, even he has many different titles from the Yes Network doing the Brooklyn Nets games, uh, the NFL on CBS, and college basketball on CBS. He also does some work for the Tennis Network, I yep. believe, and he also does some work from Westwood One Sports, right? Yeah, indeed, Kofi. I'm uh, available. Basically, <laughs> if people call, I say yes. And for now, the same voice is Ian Eagle. How you doing, Ian? All right, Kofi. Great to meet you, man. So, obviously, you did the game last night with the Nets and the Knicks. Obviously, the Nets have not been able to they have not been able to follow the Knicks, obviously. So, what can you give a quick, you know, synopsis of the game? Well, I just think the Nets' whole season is based on development, trying to figure out who's going to be a part of this in the future. And when you're in that process, there are going to be bumps along the way. And there's no doubt there are some bad matchups for the Nets. Teams that have strong bigs and a four, which is very common in the NBA, that can extend out to three-point territory, gives them fits. So the combination of Cantor and Kristaps Porzingis was unstoppable. They had no answers. And that's been a common trend for the Nets. It's an area where they certainly need to improve. But this is a better team than they were a year ago. There's no doubt about that. The culture is beginning to take form. And you can tell that uh, the team has a new view on how they want to build their roster. And they're trying to do it in a creative fashion. They just don't have the draft picks like Philadelphia had to build through the college game. They've got to find some new ways to approach it. That's a great segue. Honestly, I was going to ask my next question. Obviously, the opponent tonight, the Philadelphia 76ers, I remember you guys had a stat last night saying the Nets have not beaten a team in the Atlantic division. So what do you think the Nets have to do tonight to beat the Sixers? Well, similar issue. Philadelphia's got a center in Joel Embiid who just plants himself in the paint. He can go outside. He's an immovable force, legitimate all-star, and they will have problems with Embiid. Uh, Daro Saric, Another player who is a stretch four. He can bring you out to the three-point line, but he's got muscle. Uh, This is the Achilles heel for the Nets. Uh, I think it's a bigger picture for Brooklyn. Of course you want to go out and win games. Uh, That's how you're judged, based on results. But uh, I believe that their view is broader in that they're trying to figure out which players are going to be a part of this moving forward. And with that, it means you're going to have to go through some lapses in finding out whether certain guys can play and certain combinations of players can produce on the court. Now, we'll get back to Nets later. Let's focus more about you. So, you said you, I remember many interviews you've done, you said you talked about how you wanted to be a broadcaster since you were a little kid. Yeah. How much, have, how much was your parents' influence, the fact that you were both in the entertainment industry? How much did that help? Huge. Uh, the biggest part of that was the fact that they allowed me to dream and they didn't put me in a box with the idea of you've got to do this, this, or this. Uh, They were very open and very encouraging. So my father was a stand-up comedian, a commercial actor, a musician. My mother was a singer and an actress. So their world was very much day-to-day. There were no guarantees. And back then in the broadcasting industry, it wasn't a common job. It was something that seemed a bit far-fetched, not as much today, where you have so many avenues in which to pursue it and so many options within the media. Back then, it was fairly limited. So when I was seven or eight years old and I made the announcement to my parents that this is what I wanted to do, they were encouraging, which is really empowering as a kid. When you're told, well, 
then you'll do that. That changes your whole perspective. So it never seemed like a reach. It never seemed like something that was completely out of the question. It always seemed very realistic, and I based that on the fact that, that my parents were basically convincing me that I could do this. Even though I had no background in it, they convinced me that, that it was something that I could do if I truly wanted to do it. Now, your father did a lot of commercials yep. in his day. And you've done some commercials recently. I've heard you on NBA commercials. <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> so how much, how much when you do those commercials, how much is it like, oh, you know, in a small way, I kind of follow what my father did to commercials? Yeah, and, and you know what, Kofi, that's a great way to put it. I've never really thought of it that way. Uh, I've, I've separated the two. My father's commercial acting was more along the lines of playing a character, certainly not playing himself. When I've done commercials and voiceovers for commercials, it's been more based on the broadcast background and playing myself or an exaggerated version of myself. But, you know, that's, that's a unique and cool way to view it that in a way, I have followed in, in my father's footsteps. That was, for many years, his main source of income. Uh, when he booked the Xerox commercial for the 1977 NFL season, which was the 78 Super Bowl, it changed his life. Completely changed the whole direction of his career and uh, changed the scope of what he was doing. All of a sudden, he became more of a commodity on the comedy circuit and his rate went up and he was more in demand and he started going up for other commercials getting those so one commercial really changed the whole way his life went and he ended up getting that commercial at the age of 50 it's not as if that happened for him at 28 years old it took a while for him to, to reach that level. And he worked his butt off for Xerox. He ended up becoming a personal spokesman for the company, traveled over 200 days a year on behalf of the company. So it, it became a way of life for him, uh, very much uh, a life-changing moment. So you went to Syracuse, obviously. We could list the names of all the people that went to Syracuse, Bob Costas, Sean McDonough, Mike Sarigo, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I read that you um, you did uh, football, basketball, and lacrosse. How much did doing play a play in college help your career? It helped it immensely because it gave me an opportunity to try something I hadn't done. I didn't go to a high school where we had a radio station or a TV station. My play-by-play experience at that point had been limited to my shower. That was about it. It had very good acoustics in there, so I would call the action of whatever was going on in my mind, and that was basically it. I realized that I had a passion for it. I realized that I enjoyed the thrill of it, the fact that there was no script, uh, the fact that you could control the emotion based on using your voice. And I also liked being at the game. There was something still very empowering about that. And I, I look back on that time because I was just mimicking what I thought a play-by-play announcer should be. I don't feel like it came naturally to me. I was a good student of it. I took it very seriously. I listened to a lot of my own stuff. I listened to other broadcasters that I respected. And I began to form the basis of which I ended up using in my career. But my career coming out of college was going in a different direction. I was working at WFAN Radio. I was more on the sports talk 
lane than I was on the play-by-play side. And I was incredibly fortunate that the Nets job opened up in 1994, and I applied for it, ended up getting the job. And then all of a sudden, some other things began to click with football and, and other sports. But prior to that, other than the desire to do it, I wasn't getting a whole lot of opportunities to do it. I needed a big break, and I got it. So is there anything that stands out in your um, play-by-play run in Syracuse when you were a student? Teams were good. Uh, football team was very good. They played for the national championship against Auburn in my sophomore year. Uh, it was a tie in the Sugar Bowl, disappointing, and they didn't end up winning the national title, but they were right there among the best teams in the country. The basketball teams were very good. That was Derek Coleman's four years, Sherman Douglas, Ronnie Cycli, Stevie Thompson, David Johnson, a bunch of NBA-level players at Syracuse. The lacrosse team won three national championships in the four years that I was there. I had never seen a lacrosse game in my life until I got to Syracuse, and then I end up at the university, and they're playing at the highest possible level. And then I later found out most people don't play lacrosse like that. They just happen to be exceptional at it. So I would say a combination of the teams and how successful they were and the people around me. Mike Tirico was there when I was there and became a mentor for me, so that relationship is still very important. You mentioned some of the other names from Syracuse. You get to rub shoulders with them, you get to pick their brain, and ultimately the hope is you get to call them a colleague. And I've been really fortunate to, to be in that classification. So you talked about Mike Tarifo being your mentor. mentor. So um, how did that relationship form, I guess? Met him at a high school football game in Homer, New York, just outside Syracuse. I went to cover it for one of the campus radio stations. He was on the sideline covering it for the local TV station. I was a sophomore at that point. He would have been a senior, but he got a job at the CBS affiliate at WTVH as the weekend sports anchor, so he wasn't working college radio. He was a professional. And a friend of mine that I was with said, hey, isn't that Mike Tirico from the local news? I said, yeah. He said, let's go say hi. So why? why? Why would we do that? He said, why not? So we walked on over there, introduced ourselves. Mike could not have been any nicer. He said, where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from Queens. He goes, I'm from Queens. Where? I said, I'm from Forest Hills. He said, I'm from Bayside. Lo and behold, we struck up a conversation, a deeper one, and a deeper connection was formed. By by the end of that month, I was interning for him at his television station. Uh, Within the year, I was producing his radio show and working on his Sunday night sports show. And by my senior year, I was co-hosting the radio show with him. So it became a, a very important relationship for me because not just from a friendship standpoint, which was immediate, but also professionally. To see someone work at that level and to conduct himself in that manner, it was eye-opening. And it laid the groundwork of me building a foundation of how... I want to handle myself in this industry. And Mike played a large role in that. I don't think at that point he was thinking, this is my protege. He was just thinking, all right, here's another Syracuse guy that I'm trying to help out. And as the years have gone by with his success and as I've moved up in the business as well, it's, it's been a really nice dynamic that we have. And there's an understanding of where we were back in 1987 and 88 and 89 and 
1990 when I graduated, he moved on to ESPN, and eventually I got a job in in New York. So it's been it's been amazing and and a bit uh, a bit mind boggling to believe that all this time has passed already. Now you talked about your uh, you got a job with WFN, so um, I noticed you did a lot of. Um Production work with yep. uh, Mike and the Mad Dog, but you also had some on-air work. So, when was your first opportunity to on-air work at WFN? They started sending me out to cover sporting events, Devils, Nets, on weekends. I was working at the time seven to midnight on the Monday through Friday shift, so I had to get to the station at four o'clock. Shift would end at twelve o'clock every day. Basically, I was in charge of whatever went on the air on the nighttime shift. If that was the Mets. If it was the Knicks or the Rangers or a talk show with Howie Rose, it fell under my responsibility. I began, I'd say, early 91. I got the job in May of 1990. They would send me out to some events. They trusted me to phone in with a 20-second report from the Devils or the Nets or a college game. It was September of 91, somebody was under the weather, and I was given a chance to do updates, and I was thrilled at the opportunity. It was a Sunday, a football Sunday. I did well. I was asked to do it again the next week, then the next week, and the next week, and I was getting a fairly consistent one-update shift a week. The Super Bowl that year was Washington and Buffalo, and Steve Levy from ESPN was at FAN at the time. They asked us to co-host a five-hour pregame show leading up to the opening kickoff of Washington and Buffalo. And that was my first show on WFAN. So that was February of 1992. That went well. I got some more shifts. In fact, I was moved to weekend overnights at that point to do the hosting from midnight to 6 a.m. on what was Friday night, a.k.a. Saturday morning, Saturday night into Sunday morning, and I got moved to the Mike and the Mad Dog show during the week. So I was basically working seven days a week, behind the scenes, Monday through Friday, on the air for 12 hours between Saturday and Sunday early morning. And I was exhausted, but I was thrilled. It was incredible experience, and it, it really benefited me in so many ways. A, learning how to do my own show, and B... Uh, showing that I was a team player, that I was willing to do whatever they needed me to do. And by 1993, I got moved off the mic in the Mad Dog Show. I was put on the air full-time between updates and hosting. FAN got the rights to the New York Jets games. I got named as the pre- and post-game host for the Jets in 1993. And then things started to develop. The Nets job came along in 1994. I got the TV job the next year. I ended up getting the Jets play-by-play job in 1997. I did it for one year. CBS uh, then became a factor in the NFL game. I ended up getting a job with them, and now it's been literally 20 years that I've been working at CBS and 24 years on the Nets and then a variety of of other sports that, that I can squeeze in along the way. So talk about your run with the Jets. Obviously, you did some pre- and post-game shows, and yep. then you became the announcer in 1997 for the radio, uh, for radio rights for the Jets. Yep. So talk about that run, starting when you first started doing um, pre- and post. Yeah, they uh, they were not very good. <laughs> in in uh, the, the early 90s, it was the end of the Bruce Coslett era, then Rich Kotite came in, 
they literally went one in fifteen. They hit rock bottom, and I was on the post game for these games. I can where imagine where the fans fans were <laughs> were basically hanging on by a thread and ready to jump off a bridge. And I think I mirrored a lot of that emotion in many ways, but taught me a valuable lesson of preparation and uh, also how to handle some adversity, that it wasn't all smooth sailing along the way. I ended up getting the play-by-play job the year Bill Parcells signed on. Perfect timing. Parcells turned the team around. They won nine games. They came within an eyelash of making the playoffs, a loss in the last game of the season at Detroit. Barry Sanders went over 2,000 yards that day. The Lions uh, found a way to win. He, he didn't quite trust Neil O'Donnell. He brought Ray Lucas in for some plays. Lucas threw a pick, and the Jets uh, didn't make the playoffs that year. But it was a successful year, and it was the beginning of the turnaround. And if you're doing play-by-play for a successful year, I think just by the natural flow, fans consider you successful, that they're happy to hear your voice because the team's winning. And there's nothing you can do to control that. That just happened by complete accident that I got the job the year that Parcell started. I would have done that job for the rest of my life, and I would have been happy, truly. But I did get some opportunities. I had called the NCAA tournament for CBS that year in Sacramento. And during the NCAA tournament, I opened up USA Today when Rudy Martsky was the media columnist. And the big headline is CBS regains the rights to the NFL. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm at CBS. I'm doing college basketball. Maybe I could do the NFL for CBS. I didn't know if that was a pipe dream, if that was realistic. It ended up working out. I left the Jets. I had actually uh, gotten an offer from Fox during that Jets season to do three games. And I went to the general manager of WFAN at the time, Joel Hollander, who was a great guy and and was uh, very uh, much important in my career, and asked him, could I get off the Jet games to do these Fox games? And he said, I and I love you, but how? How can I justify? You get 16 games a year. I can't let you out for three of them. And he was right. He made sense. But my, my career easily could have been at Fox if he said... Yeah, go ahead. Go do them. I ended up actually doing NFL Europe for Fox prior to that. So that was my first foray into uh, television and football. I had never done a football game on TV, and until I did that, I did three games for them the summer of 1997. And just by happenstance, the CBS thing worked out, and and that's where I've been for a long time now. Do you have any good Bill Parcells stories to talk He was very sharp and very cutting in his approach in production meetings or even when I was doing the radio and I would have to interview him. He would just look you down and he would make sure that you knew who was boss in those situations. And you just had to you had to go head to head in a way, not. Not in a way where you're battling, but just to let them know that you're prepared, you know your stuff, and you're ready for this. Because if you weren't ready, he would dress you down. So he, uh, he had a, f- a really good sense of humor. I'm not sure people realize that. Very witty, very quick, 
and also very informed. It wasn't just football-based. He could talk about things outside of the game where you walked away impressed with his overall knowledge of, of the world. Uh, but he could be tough. And production meetings, depending on what mood you were in, uh, he was in, you never quite knew which direction it was going to go in. But I enjoyed uh, talking to him. I always, I always walked out of those meetings feeling as if I was better informed on, on football. Now, you said you've been with, uh, you've done NFL games, CBS, I guess for 20 years now, right? 20, yeah. So, how was that first season like? First season, I was paired with Mark May, who had been at Turner doing Sunday Night Football with Vern Lundquist and Pat Hayden at the time. And Mark was one of the Hawks, Washington Redskins, Super Bowl champion, uh, came out of Pitt, was an Outland Trophy winner, 6'5", played at 298, but lost a bunch of weight. The offensive lineman can go one of two ways. You could play at 6'5", 299, and then two years into retirement, you could weigh 360 pounds, or you could weigh 260 pounds. You just didn't know which way it would go. I, I will tell you this, they rarely maintained. Their weight either went way up or way down. His weight went way down which led me to believe that he always had to keep the weight on. His more natural build was more in the 250, 255 range. Big guy. I didn't know Mark. Mark didn't know me. We ended up working three years together, had a good run together, uh, enjoyed his company. Uh, Mark and I became friendly, but he ended up taking a job at ESPN and really became more known as a college guy for many years. The first year for me, because Mark was new to CBS and I was new to CBS, we were going through it together. He was more or less a neophyte on television at that point. He'd done a couple years at Turner, but it was a three-man booth. So we figured it out together. We had a producer and Vic Frank, a director and Suzanne Smith that were veterans and knew their stuff. We had a good production crew. I always felt confident. I never went into those games feeling as if this was too big for me or I was intimidated or overwhelmed. And maybe it was blind confidence. I, I think back on it now. I was 29 years old. I had done a few years of net games, so I felt confident about the television aspect of it. And because of my Jets background, I felt pretty confident with the football aspect. It was just a matter of marrying those two worlds. And I think maybe a little bit of naivete that I didn't know any better, so I just went about my business, and it was well-received. Uh, the first game I did at CBS was Peyton Manning's first game as a pro. It was Indianapolis against Miami. It was Dan Marino right at the tail end of his career, Manning beginning his career. And I thought to myself before the game that this is fairly pivotal, but I didn't want to make it bigger than it was. And after I did the game, I ended up heading back to uh, the New York area, and my agent received a call from someone at CBS and said, hey, we'd, we'd, like, to, we'd like to get Ian locked up to a long-term deal, which meant they were impressed. So that eased my nerves a bit that there weren't any more options on the deal. I had a three-year deal locked in, and that was after one game. So I think that probably is what infused me with, with the conviction of, I think I'm going to be okay here. Is there any game stands out that you've done all these years that you say, oh, man, that was a good game or, you know, I really enjoyed doing that game? NFL, every year you get 
you get one of those games. So for me to pinpoint one specifically over 20 years, not necessarily. We, we've had a lot of exciting moments, and you know, I've been fortunate to call a bunch of playoff games as well between Westwood 1 and CBS now. Uh, the goal is to one day call the Super Bowl in some form. Uh, I think any football announcer would tell you that. And I think that's the ultimate game. So those memories will be different than the memories that are formed over the course of a 20-year of a career calling the NFL. Basketball, a little bit different because I was calling it for a team for so many years with the Nets. So there were some specific games that stand out just based on the fact that it's a long season and the team needed some of these wins to take that next step. Chasing kids first year with the Nets, 2001-2002, it changed the whole franchise. And for them to pull off a game five when they were still at that point playing best out of five in the first round, they beat Indiana. Reggie Miller hits a half-court shot, descended to overtime. They go to double overtime and then kid takes over as the number one seed. They survive. Bill Raftery and I are calling the game. Bill, at that point, had done 20 years of Nets games. I was still fairly fairly new, five, six years, seven years into it. But it just felt like this dark cloud had finally dissipated over this franchise that had been in the backseat for so long in the New York area. That one really stands out quite a bit because it just meant so much for the organization. Now, an interesting thing I want to ask you is that um, I remember we talked, uh, you know, when I got get to know when I was getting to know you yeah. about your impressions of uh, New Jersey and the Nets. So, what were your impressions of the Nets before you got the job? I grew up as a native New Yorker and following the Knicks. Uh, that's just how it was. I, I was a Knicks fan at a very young age, and the Nets at that point weren't really a factor. You didn't talk about them a whole lot. The weirdest part, I've never told anybody this, I had a dream that year in 94, and I remember telling my wife about it. I was newly married. I'd gotten married in 93. I told her that I had a dream that she and I went to a net game with my dad, who didn't go to a lot of games, and we're sitting there for the game, and someone came up to us during the game and said, Ian, our announcer has laryngitis. We need you to call the game. And I looked at my wife and my dad, and I got up from the stands and walked down and put on a headset and called the net game. And I don't know why that ever would pop up in your head. It was less than a month later that the news came out in the New York Post that Howard David was leaving the New Jersey Nets job. And I thought to myself, maybe this is fate. Maybe there is some, some destiny to this. So from that point on, when I got the, the Nets job, I was still living in New York at the time. I was reverse commuting. That made very little sense. I grew up in New York, so New Jersey, in my mind, was a cesspool. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that New Jersey was nice. I just assumed that it was an armpit because that's what everybody had told me. I ended up moving to the state of New Jersey in, in 1995, and that's all my two kids know. That's been my life now for, for 23 years. So, yeah, it, it really did change the course of my entire life. Getting that job changed everything in many ways. So how, how, how has... Um How's your presence of the Nets changed since you've become the announcer of the Nets? 
Well, now it it's very different because I've seen years and years go by of a lot of people that I care about that have come through the organization. These are true friends, lifelong friendships that have been formed. You know, I've I've said this before, and and I truly mean it. The fact that Bill Raftery was my analyst also was a game changer because of the way he approached the job, because of the kind of person he is. I think it changed my philosophy on broadcasting. I sat next to him for 50-plus games a year over a seven-year period, and that means a lot of time spent together and a lot of trust formed within the broadcast relationship and then the personal relationship. Uh, that's, That's a lifelong friend that never would have happened if not for that. Jim Spinarkle, same situation. Later on with Kelly Trapuca, Mark Jackson, and Sarah Kustak, and Mike Fratello. Uh, these are friends for life. So what happens when you work for a team is it, it touches on a different nerve. Uh, not to say, and I'd like to say on the air, I, I don't feel like I'm openly rooting. I try to keep it professional and down the middle. Of course, if the Nets have a big play, I'm going to articulate that. But if there's an exceptional play by the opponent, I can't just sit back and pretend like it didn't happen. Is the job better when the team wins? Absolutely. Let's just use logic. Of course it's going to be better. Everybody's happier. The audience is happier. Uh, But when you're associated with a team, it does bring on a different set of emotions and how you do your job. It's just natural. There are people that you root for to do well. Relationships are formed, and you want to see them, people in your life, do well. And unlike a CBS game or a college game, I don't really care who wins. I want a competitive game. That's all I root for. Are there people that I like on specific teams that I bonded with? Of course. But at the end of the day, the only thing I'm rooting for is competitive game, and then I'll add one other aspect to it. A successful broadcast. A broadcast that you can be proud of. A lot of people work on a television broadcast. It's such a collaborative effort. So you want to feel as if everybody contributed in some way to get this thing on the air and then three hours later we got off the air and it was clean and it was entertaining and it was informative. That's the way I I look at the job. And that's never changed. That's never waned in all those years of doing it. Now, I want to get to a point. uh, You, uh, Jim Spinarco, you guys seem to have a great chemistry. I remember there was like, uh, I think Joe Johnson had like an ankle-bing crossover. And you guys were just going insane. You guys were like fans almost. So where does that come from, you would say? Well, I I pride myself on getting the best out of whoever I work with. We're a team. It's not individual. When people watch on television, I don't feel as if they're judging you based on, I like him, but I don't like him. It's, I like these guys, or I like these gals, whoever it might be calling the game. So to me, part of the job as a play-by-play announcer is to make the person sitting next to you feel comfortable, just like you would if you were hanging out at a cocktail party. Good conversation and a nice back and forth. I don't ever want it to feel like it's work. You want it to feel like a natural back and forth because I think that's what people gravitate towards. 
I've worked with over a hundred different partners. I've kept a running list. I realized early in my career that I was bouncing around a little bit and I had a bunch of different people that I had worked with. So I started keeping tabs and writing down who I worked with. And we're talking about now probably 112, 115 people that I've worked with. And I can honestly say that every person I've worked with, I've tried my best to make them comfortable and get the most out of what they're capable of. And that means you have to be malleable. That means that you have to be flexible. You can't just say, hey, this is how I do it, and whoever's sitting next to me, you have to adjust to me. It's quite the opposite. You have to adjust to them. I'm the professional broadcaster. I'm the one that's been hired to steer the ship on the air. The analyst, some have bigger personalities, some don't. Some have a good sense of humor, some don't. Some, you can toss anything their way and they can handle it. Others, they need to know what's coming up. It's your job to smooth out the edges. Jim and I are legitimate friends. So when you have a legitimate friendship, if it's not showing up on the air, that's a problem. That should be natural. That should be easy. The fans watching or listening should be able to, to latch onto that. If that's not happening, then you've got to assess why. Why is that not working? For me, that's been the easiest part of this equation. Bonding with people, finding common ground, and then attacking it as a team. That's, that's the way that, that I look at it. And it doesn't matter who my partner is. I'm going to do my best to make that person look good. If they look good, we look good. It's a pretty simple theory, but I would tell you not every broadcaster subscribes to it. They get too caught up in what they're doing and whatever self-importance. You have to be devoid of ego when you're on a team if you want to be successful. And by the way, there are times where I have to take over, and I know that. And there are times where I have to lay out and let the other person take over, and I'm aware of that. So it's, it's sensing the, the right timing and having a good feel, just like you would in, in any relationship. Now, I want to get back to WFN. I remember uh, Mike Francesa said, I, I don't know where he said it at, he said that um, when he was looking for a co-host, that there was two people he was looking for specifically. It was yourself and Bill Simmons. Obviously, you couldn't take the job because of all the commitments that yep. you had. But if you could, do you think that you would have been successful as a co-host? Or? I think so. Uh, I think I probably have the right personality that, that could have made it work. I don't have to be the guy. And... I could have been a nice foil for him. We had a dinner. We sat down out on Long Island. Uh, he told me his vision of the show and, and what he thought it could be. And he was very excited and confident that it could work. I told him at that time that, that I would think about it, which I did. The timing was not great for me. And I told him if it was two years earlier, I probably would have taken the job. But at the time, I was moving up in all of my, my different jobs, and I felt things were still going in the right direction, that I still had room to grow. And that's what happened at CBS, and eventually I got some work with Turner calling the playoff games. Those things would not have been realistic, because it's a consuming job. You want to host in New York, drive time, Monday through Friday, you got to be all in. And while... FAN was open to the idea of me continuing on some of these other jobs. I know realistically, at some point, I couldn't. I would have had to pull the plug. And I wasn't ready to, to do that. You know, I still felt that, that I had some room to grow and, and I had uh, 
places that, that I could aspire to. And I still feel that today. Now, you also do some, you do some work for the Tennis Network. Yeah, Tennis Channel. So obviously there's a big difference between tennis play-by-play where you let the action happen and then you're describing yeah. it afterwards and in terms of the difference in football and basketball where you're kind of you're usually describing the action for the yeah. most part. Yeah, no, you nailed it. So how difficult was that early on when you first started doing tennis? Yeah, a little bit of an adjustment. I was a tennis player as a kid, so I had a built-in knowledge that I felt very confident with, that I could speak the language, that I understood the flow, the timing, uh, the ebb of a, of a match. And then, similar to what we talked about earlier, I've got an expert next to me. I don't have to delve into areas that I'm not familiar with. I can set up the expert. If that expert's John McEnroe, if it's Martina Navratilova, if it's Jim Courier, if it's Lindsay Davenport, if it's Justin Gimmelstab, I recognize that they know their business a lot more than I do. So I think that all of those individuals involved enjoyed working with me because I wasn't trying to push my ideas and philosophies. I was very much a point guard, distributing, setting up, bringing a sense of sports journalism to it and the play-by-play mentality of telling the story, keeping it entertaining, keeping it informative. But yes, the, the whole tone of your play-by-play is different. It's much more reactionary. You're putting periods and exclamation points on the action. You're not describing it as it happens. Football, basketball, there's action, and you're in the middle of it trying to enhance. Tennis, you're getting out of the way, and then you're capping it off. You're you're trying your best to uh, not get in the way in many ways. But it does take a different muscle of your brain. There's no doubt about it. And I think I've probably evolved in it as well. When I first started doing it, I was bringing a lot of energy and I realized that I needed to temper that in order to match what was happening on the court. But with that said, I've had executives at the Tennis Channel tell me, hey, don't don't change too much. We like that you bring that. Maybe it's something the sport needs. So I've, uh, I've found a happy medium as the years have gone on. The only event I do now, just based on scheduling, is the French Open. And I end up going to Paris for 13, 14 days. I've been doing it 11 years. So I'm a, I'm a veteran of that. I speak no French. I've, <laughs> I've acquired no French vocabulary whatsoever. I'm a picky eater, so I don't take advantage of the cuisine there. I stick to what I know. And ultimately, I, uh, I catch up on a lot of Netflix, basically. European Netflix is very strong. They, they've got shows that, that are not available in the U.S. in movies. So that's what I end up doing. A lot of tennis and a lot of Netflix. Now, before I go end this up with some next questions, uh, you said on the Joni, uh, the Joni Carey podcast that your goal was to be the play-by-play announcer for the New York Mets. And I remember you when told I was growing me, up, yes. You yeah. told me that you had an opportunity back in the mid-90s to do it, but obviously the schedule wise couldn't do it. Yeah, Kofi, it was the only time my wife ever complained. Ever. And she's been nothing but supportive of me and all that. She knew me in college, we, we dated in college, so it's not as if I shocked her by becoming a broadcaster. It's not like I, I told her I wanted to be a dentist and I eventually became a broadcaster. I I told her what I wanted to do. She knew. 
it was the only time I had a, an offer to do 20 to 25 Met games, and I told her about it, and we had just started a, a young family, and she said, are you serious? Like, really? You're considering this? And I looked in her eye, and I, I realized that this was not going to be a smart move on my part, on a personal level. So I ended up turning it down, not, not to say that it would have turned into more, but it was an opportunity that, that I did. And look, I've turned down a bunch of other jobs, too, that just didn't fit in. And you move on to, to the next challenge. I've been really fortunate that I've gotten other jobs that have fit in. But that was the one, as a kid, that I did dream about one day doing. And it just didn't, it didn't work out. The stars were not aligned for that one. But if you ever do, if you ever did get the opportunity to call a baseball game, would you ever want to do it? I've been given some chances since then, and again, I uh, I look at the personal situation and recognize that the summer is the only time I have off, and I have learned uh, with help from my wife that I do need to turn my battery off. Uh, I go I go straight through, uh, basically August through the end of May into early June. And for many years, I would take jobs then over that next six-week period leading into preseason football. The last couple of years, I've, I've pulled back a bit, and um, I think it's been smart. It, it, it's, it can wear you out. The travel has been tougher as the years have gone by, and I've realized that uh, I need to, to take a break. Now, your son's trying to get into business. Obviously. Yeah, he's in, he's in college. He's in Syracuse. Yeah. So. How does that make you feel knowing that your son's trying to do the same thing that you're, you're doing? I'm annoyed, to be honest. No. <laughs> no, it's great. A uh, lot, of, lot of pride. Fortunately, he has some talent because that would be a, a tough conversation to have if, uh, if I didn't think he was capable. But he is. And uh, he's doing everything the right way up at Syracuse, just like I did, working for the radio station and the television station and getting involved in, in a bunch of other things. So it's been really exciting to see it through his eyes. And it's all these years later. I graduated college in 1990, so we're talking about 28 years now that have passed. And uh, my son's 21 years old, a junior, second semester, and is going to jump into the job market like everybody else and, and try to navigate his way through this wacky business like we all did. Yeah. So, like I said, I was going to f- uh, end it with some next questions. Uh, so I'm going to break it down like three different layers. Yeah. So what are your favorite moments from each of the three arenas they've been in? So starting with the building known as, formerly known as, I guess, the Continental Airlines Arena. I yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. It was uh, originally Brendan Byrne. And I want to say it was my first or second year doing TV. It got changed to Continental Airlines Arena. And just before the first home game, the producer tells me, Ian, you, you can't say Continental Airlines Arena. I said, what do, you, what do you mean? He said, well, we don't have a deal with them. They're trying to make a deal for advertising, and, and they haven't agreed to it. So you, you can't call it that. I said, well, what do you want me to call it exactly? He said, I, I don't care, but you can't call it that. So for a good solid 45 games, I was calling it the Meadowlands. I was saying, welcome back to East Rutherford. And I don't know, about 25 games in, I'm at the court ready to do the stand-up. And a, and a guy just walks onto the court, tough, tough security apparently, 
He says, uh, Eon? Talking to me. So I know he has really no idea who I am. If he's butchering my name to that level. I said, yeah. He said, hey, I'm uh, Mike uh, Tolstoy from uh, Continental Airlines. I sit up there in the luxury box, and we watch you every game, and we've noticed that you never say Continental Airlines Arena. Did, did we offend you? Did something happen with Continental? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, uh, I didn't get peanuts on my last flight. I'm, I'm still pissed off about it. I said, no, no, nothing happened. I said, I've been told that I can't say Continental Airlines because... There's no deal between Sports Channel and... He said, really? I didn't know that. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure they, they checked with you on this, Mike. And uh, I said, no, I don't have anything personally against your airline. About two or three weeks later, they struck a deal. So something maybe Mike did have more pull than I, than I thought of. So that, that whole arena was just a whole funny concept. It was old when I got there. And the Nets were still there for a while until they moved to, uh, to the Rock. Uh, you know, the Game 5 I mentioned against Indiana would, would be the, the highest point. But there were so many moments with Vince Carter and Jason Kidd. And just for me, early in my broadcast career, that was my home arena. So that, that was, for me, special just on a personal level. But the arena itself was not special in the least bit. Once they moved to The Rock, uh, I also was not allowed to say the name of that arena for the entire two-year period we were there. Oh, I didn't know that. Two years. Never said it once. Never slipped. I, I don't say it to this day because it was pounded into my head. You can't say it. They would not do a deal with yes. Never said the arena. Always would say, welcome back to Newark. Amazing. That for two years. Uh, that two-year period, eh, they got Darren Williams at that point, and you felt that things were maybe on the upswing there. Uh, Brooke Lopez, early in his career. Uh, I liked it. I liked doing games there. It was very close to my house. Uh, there were some. I made it home once, I believe, in 11 minutes. That was wow. my record. I hit every light in Newark, and boom, I was home. So on, a, on uh, the personal level and family level, uh, that, that was very convenient. Brooklyn has just been a completely different vibe. It's been, I think, a really positive thing. The team needed it. I don't know if I felt that way when it happened. I didn't know how it would all work. Somebody had much better vision than I did, and Bruce Ratner and Mikhail Prokhorov. But I think it's been a good fit, and I do believe they're building a fan base, and there are people in this area that are, are starting to, to buy in. It doesn't mean that they're all net fans. I think there's been some curiosity combined with just the general pride of Brooklyn, that people want to support a Brooklyn team. But uh, there, there have been some moments here when, when Jason Kidd took over that year and Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, uh, that team did not exceed expectations by any stretch, but there were some legitimately fun moments. Joe Johnson has provided a bunch of buzzer beaters here at Barclays Center, and from a play-by-play standpoint, that's what you hope for. You wish every game was a buzzer beater. That, that's the ultimate. Can you rise to the occasion? Can you nail the call? And with Johnson, he actually provided a bunch of them, and I think we probably won a couple of Emmys because of him. So I guess I have a couple more questions. Uh, 
what was your favorite Nets player to, I guess, cover or interact with? Well, I think Kidd just changed everything and the intensity that he brought. And even just beyond the basketball court, he was a huge sports fan. He could talk to you about any sport. Happened to be a huge Oakland Raiders fan. So if I did a Raiders game and then I had a net game the next day or two days later, he could go chapter and verse over what happened in that game. It always blew me away. It showed you his computer mind and how his brain operated. I, uh, I would tell you that, that he was the most enjoyable player to cover. Uh, Vince Carter is among the nicest human beings to go along with his superstar ability. So that combination of affable personality and then, again, from a play-by-play man's point of view, he had an opportunity and a chance to create a special moment every game, something you've never seen before, just based on his natural, God-given talents. So it challenged me as a play-by-play announcer to come up with creative ways to describe what he was doing. And it was, it was a thrill. He, he, was, he was a special guy to call games. And I guess my last question, I always ask my guests, when it's all said and done, how would you like to be remembered? Well, more than anything else, uh, I think the way I view myself is a good teammate and someone who saw the larger scope on this. That, yes, it's a game. Yes, there's a winner, there's a loser, but I've tried to make it entertaining as well, that there is a human aspect to the broadcast. I don't want to be a machine. I don't want to be a robot. I want to be someone that fans can connect with in some way when they watch a game, that they could visualize sitting down on a couch or at a bar and just chatting about the game with someone. I want that familiarity to be there. I prepare at a high level. I take that very seriously, but I've also learned through the years not to force things based on the preparation that you've done. If it doesn't work in the moment, don't use it. If it doesn't make air, that's okay. You can live with it. You move on to the next game and you prepare the same way. So blending the entertainment value with the information. And I hope my emotion comes through. That's real. That's genuine. That is not contrived. I want to be there. I can't stand it when I'm watching a sporting event and it sounds like the announcers are interested in everything other than the event. Inside jokes can be fun, but the fans have to be in on it. So uh, for me, it's about an inclusive attitude and an inclusive mentality. And that's, that's been my approach. Uh, be a pro. Do your job and do it well. All right. That is my guest, Ian Eagle. And this has been the Broadcast Show. And I hope you have enjoyed this edition. All right, Kofi. Thanks, man. Well done. Thanks.